Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Good morning to you. Of course, this is John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Ton of stuff to get into today. I'm going to tease my interview a little bit. I'm going to be joining this program by Hall of Fame pitcher Ferguson Jenkins within the first hour, so probably in about maybe 20, 25 minutes or so. Another great show planned. we got a series of guests, as we've always done here on the Passball Show. Just a reminder, download the iPhone and Android apps if you haven't already. Just be able to take the program and the rest of the programming here on the MTR Radio Network with you on your iPhone or Android devices. But before we get into that, and I, I know, you know, because what we do here on the past ball shows, we have the show recorded previously during the week. And unfortunately, that allows me to not be able to be as breaking with news. And I'm sure the news has been said already. However, it ends up working out for uh, free agent pitcher Masahiro Tanaka. He has a new team. He should have a new team if it's determined that there's a good enough deal for him to take, which, you know, considering the amount of money that's being thrown out there, it doesn't look like it's going to be a big surprise. So he's going to end up somewhere. And you, the listener, know what team that is already. So what we're going to do is I'm going to go through all the remaining free agents, not all of them, but all the major free agents on the market right now, because what's been very interesting about this offseason is we have seldomly gotten to the end of January, where we have so many players, so many uh, impact type of players that still have not found a home yet. And maybe some of the other ones may find a home by the time this show airs on Saturday morning. And if that's the case, we're going to see whether I'm right or not. But I'm going to go right through the list right now. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to point kind of on a, on a target, like I'm throwing a dart, a dart at a dartboard. But uh, the way it's set up with the three teams that I have set up for each team, one of them is likely to be the, the landing home of each one of these free agents. And, uh, you know, over the course of the next couple shows, I'll show you how, how I end up doing, how my targeting is, how I throw my darts, how close I am, how many number one can, uh, choices 
end up being with that same team and how many end up in the top three. I, I'm going to say that I, I'm going to be pretty accurate in regards to the top three I have for each one of these free agents going to each one of these teams. So if it's not the top one, um, it's going to be either two or three. We'll start out with Masahiro Tanaka. And uh, if you followed my article that I wrote on JohnPLA.com, it's also on MTRmedia.com. If you're listening to uh, the Passball Show right here on your uh, your personal computer, all you got to do is just click over and read the article titled uh, Tanaka to the Cubs. Three reasons why it's not such a silly thought, and it really isn't. And you look at uh, Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer, the way that they've uh, targeted this guy really from their years in Boston, where they know about this guy's talent, they want this guy, they think he's going to be that good of a pitcher. He may not be you Darvish, but he's certainly going to be better than Dice K in the eyes of a lot of scouts. I think a lot of people that are following this game are kind of underestimating the Cubs. They're a large market team. You look at the payroll, where it's been over the last several years, it's dropped to, with the expected arbitration hearings, almost less than $80 million, which is uncharacteristic of the Cubs. They certainly have the money to do it. And in my opinion... Uh, I'm going to tell you more often than not, you're going to be talking about Masahiro Tanaka pitching for the Cubs next season. I'm going with the Cubs as the number one choice, backing it up with the Dodgers if he doesn't end up with the Cubs, and with the Yankees if he doesn't end up with the Cubs or the Dodgers. So that's where Masahiro Tanaka, in my opinion, is going to be. Maybe I'm, I'm spewing gibberish right now and I'm telling you something that's completely wrong, but I guarantee he's with one of those three teams and one of them. Uh, if I had a choice, it's going to be the Chicago Cubs. Moving on to Nelson Cruz. You hear about Nelson Cruz's name. Uh, obviously, the link to performance-enhancing drugs has uh, taken its toll on the free agent market for Cruz. He's a guy that certainly can provide some power to a lot of teams. Uh, you would think if the performance-enhancing drugs were not an issue, he would be with a team already. He may have to settle on a one-year deal or a two-year deal. And I'm telling you, he's going to end up with the Baltimore Orioles. The Orioles... Uh, have the ability, they, 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 they could spend a little bit. They've wanted Cruz, but they kind of want him on their own dime a little bit. They don't want to overpay in regards to years. They don't want it to be a three- or four-year deal. As Cruz and his agent are going to come back, the Orioles are going to step up and pick him up and make him an upgrade to their outfield situation. If he doesn't end up with the Orioles, I'm predicting he's going to be with the Seattle Mariners. And if not the Mariners, a dark horse that I think may be a little overlooked is the St. Louis Cardinals. Remember, the St. Louis Cardinals traded David Freeze to the Los Angeles Angels for Peter Borges. They lost Carlos Beltran as a free agent. John Jay moves over to right field. I think they could view at the right price that Cruz be, can be an upgrade for John Jay in right field and kind of get themselves in a situation where they could certainly benefit from the pitching that they have in that rotation with a solid offense. The next guy I'm going to get into is Stephen Drew. Stephen Drew is going to be a very interesting one because uh, here's a guy that probably could have been signed if you want to make the picture-perfect scenario. It's the New York Mets and their need for a shortstop, but I don't think the Mets are in it. I think the Mets you know, would like Drew, but they, they have a certain price maybe set up for them. And if the, the price doesn't get down to as low as the Mets are willing to go, they're not going to do it. And that's why I think in the end he's going to be back with the Boston Red Sox. So uh, Stephen Drew, maybe on a one-year deal, maybe a two-year deal, I think the Red Sox could throw a little more cash than, than the New York Mets will be willing to, even on a one- or two-year deal. So I'm going with the Red Sox first. If the Red Sox end up you know, fumbling it or deciding that Jonathan Herrera is a good enough backup behind Middle Brooks and behind Xander Bogarts, and of course uh, Garen Sakini is coming up as a third-base prospect 
for the Boston Red Sox. So maybe they feel like they're deep enough there. If that's their decision, then I could see him going to, for the Mets. I could see him uh, maybe taking the deal that the Mets have, which may be a little bit of a low ball type of deal. But if it's the best one and maybe the most interested team, he then I could see him end up going there. The third team I'm going to throw in there is a team that Drew played for a couple of years ago, and that's the Oakland Athletics. I think the Athletics would like him for depth. They would like to maybe play him at shortstop, move some other guys around. Uh, he's a guy that made a very good impression with the Athletics. So I'm going to go Red Sox, Mets, Athletics for Stephen Drew. The next free agent is going to be Matt Garza. And in my opinion, Matt Garza is going to be the most sought-after free agent pitcher after Masahiro Tanaka is off the board. And the Dodgers, who in my opinion will lose out to Tanaka, but not by much, are going to end up getting Matt Garza. And Matt Garza was a guy who was almost traded for the Dodgers a couple times over the last couple seasons. They just couldn't work out the package. The Dodgers uh, obviously would want Tanaka if they can absolutely get him, if they end up being outbid, which I think they will by the Cubs. Uh, I think they're going to put their focus and a sole focus on Matt Garza. And let's be honest, just a lot of teams are concerned about his health. They're concerned about uh, you know the the arm injuries he's had over the last couple seasons, and maybe may not be willing to make that sound of an investment in him. That's going to be an advantage to the Dodgers, who are going to look at Garza's upside as being the best out of what's left on the free agent pitching market. So I think Garza will end up with the Dodgers. If he doesn't end up with the Dodgers, I see a return to the Texas Rangers as a possibility. So I'm going to go Rangers as my second choice there. And the third choice would be the Baltimore Orioles. I think the Baltimore Orioles are going to be monitoring the situation similarly to the way they are with Nelson Cruz. And if the price for Garza goes down, which it could, I mean, teams may be a little bit wary of giving Garza the type of deal that he's looking for. I think he could end up with the Baltimore Orioles. So Matt Garza, number one Dodgers, number two Rangers, number three Baltimore Orioles. The next guy I'm going to get into is Bronson Arroyo. And Bronson Arroyo is, is going to benefit similarly to Garza, about one of the three teams that I mentioned before bidding for Masahiro Tanaka. And the Yankees are not going to be in it on Matt Garza. They're not interested in Irvin Santana. They're not really interested in Ubaldo Jimenez, simply because of the price. They don't want to go out there and spend similar to Tanaka type of money on a pitcher that they feel is not going to give them the results that they expect out of Tanaka. And that's why Bronson Arroyo works out perfectly for the New York Yankees on a two- or three-year deal. He has the postseason experience. The Yankees front office like him in regards to his durability and ability to go out there and throw 200 innings. And if Tanaka is not an option for the Yankees, the Yankees become the number one favorites to land Bronson Arroyo. If he doesn't go to the Yankees, I'm going to go back to a team that I mentioned before and I've mentioned twice already here, and that's the Baltimore Orioles. If Maybe if they find the price for Matt Garza being a little bit too high, they will certainly jump in for Bronson Arroyo. But if he doesn't end up with either one of those two teams, it will be the Cincinnati Reds, returning to the Reds, who obviously have no problem with him. They think he may be a little overpriced. They like uh, Tony Singrani, the left-hand pitcher who came up last year. They've been developing some good prospects and some good pitching prospects throughout their organization, and they feel they could round out the bottom of the rotation that way. But if the price for Bronson Arroyo goes down, I consider the Reds in it. So I'm going Yankees number one, Orioles number two, and Cincinnati Reds number three. That leads us to Irvin Santana. And if you talk about the five teams that have made bids for Masahiro Tanaka. There's the Chicago White Sox, the Chicago Cubs, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the New York Yankees, and the Arizona Diamondbacks. And the Diamondbacks do want to add a top type of pitcher 
Tanaka would work out for them. Uh, uh, reportedly, the offer that they have is uh, six years and about $120 million, which is going to show that I say three teams are going to bid a little more than that. So I think he could end up getting $140, $150 when it's all said and done by one of these other teams. But the Arizona Diamondbacks have interest. They've been linked to Chris Sale. I think they just see the price being a little too high for a guy like Sale. And let's be honest, if you're the Chicago White Sox and you're going to trade Chris Sale, you better get a killing for him. A guy that's this young, has that many more controllable years under contract with the Chicago White Sox, you better make a killing if you're going to end up trading Chris Sale. He, he's not going to be traded. So the Arizona Diamondbacks want to add themselves a top impact type of starter. And that, to me, is going to be Irvin Santana. He's going to the Arizona Diamondbacks. If he doesn't go to the Diamondbacks, I think a very good option would be the Chicago White Sox, a team who does want to add another pitcher, a team that thinks that they can be a little more competitive this year than last year. You know, certainly 2013 was a disappointing season for the Chicago White Sox. Uh, I think he, he could end up with the White Sox. The Yankees, I think, are going to keep some tabs on Santana, maybe not wanting to go four or five years and commit a ridiculous amount of money for him. But if uh, things fall out with the Diamondbacks and the White Sox, I could see the Yankees as the third choice. So for Irvin Santana, I got the Diamondbacks number one, the Chicago White Sox number two, and the Yankees number three. That's going to move us off to the last free agent pitcher that's getting a lot of attention. That's Ubaldo Jimenez. And in my opinion, he's going to go to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And I think the Angels have uh, had their interest in Tanaka, but I think uh, decided they want to commit the amount of years and, and money that it was going to take to bring in Tanaka, especially for a pitcher when they got Jared Weaver and they got C.J. Wilson, a couple of guys that they paid some money to. But you look at the way the rotation sets up, and I know Tyler Skaggs is going to be there. Hector Santiago is going to be in the mix. Yes, they have some pitching options there, but I think to add another top type of pitcher like Ubaldo Jimenez will certainly round out the top part of that rotation and make that team very competitive going into the 2014 season. The last free agent I want to get into is going to be the most interesting one because this is one that could probably take us into the start of the season. We were talking about this last year with Kyle Loesch who ended up signing in spring training with the Milwaukee Brewers for three years and uh, Kendrys Morales is going to be in a similar type of situation. The issue with him is that National League teams probably aren't as interested in him because of the fact that he probably is a DH at this point. And that's going to make it tough for him uh, to get a lot of offers. And obviously the free agent compensation with the draft pick, losing a first-round draft pick or whatever the top pick that you have left is going to be very tough for a, for a team to be willing to consider. And in my opinion, a team that works out the most is a team that's done a very good job of building up its farm system, may be able to afford giving up a second-round pick because obviously uh, they, their first-round pick is protected because they've had the worst record in baseball over the last couple seasons. They're about to have the number one draft pick overall for the third consecutive season, and that, of course, is the Houston Astros. And they've been a little more aggressive in the free agent market, bringing in veteran type of players. And remember, the Astros aren't playing in the National League anymore. They would like to have a guy that could be a full-time DH, a guy that they could trust, go out there and make you know 500 plate appearances, hit for a little bit of power. They wanted to do that with Chris Carter and Carlos Pena last year and ended up not working out. I think it works very well for the Houston Astros. And I think adding him as a DH and making him a full-time DH is going to kind of bounce the lineup a little better, make it, put them in a position where with some of the younger players, if they could come up and produce right away, then maybe the Astros could be a little more competitive than people expect them to be. And I think right now they're in a position where they could afford 
uh, Kendrys Morales on a one-year deal and give up their second-round draft pick and be able to move on from there. If he doesn't end up with the Houston Astros, the most logical team that I see him going to is the Seattle Mariners. And let's be honest, the Seattle Mariners have been very quiet since they made the Robinson Cano signing. I think they'll be in it for Cruz. I think they want the price to drop down. They signed Corey Hart. They traded for Logan Morrison. But Kendrys Morales is a guy that could fit in. He could be their full-time DH. You could maybe play Morrison or Hart in the outfield and play the other guy at first base and kind of balance your lineup out a little bit. Morales was a little bit down in his numbers last year with Seattle, but has a year there. He's, he's played there already. I think he's a guy that could be in for a bounce-back season. So I would go with Seattle if he doesn't end up with the Houston Astros. The third team, I'm going to stay in the AL West, and I'm going to stay with teams that Kendrys Morales has played for, and that's the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. The Angels have made a lot of moves. The trade of Mark Trumbo, letting Morales go in the trade last year for Jason Vargas, has opened up the DH position. And with Josh Hamilton and Albert Pujols uh, and, and guys like that that they have that are going to need some time to DH, Kendrys Morales is a guy that could play a couple games at first base for them. Maybe play a game or two in the outfield or sit out a game with some of the other guys are DHing, but obviously a guy that Artie Moreno has liked. He's had a track record. He's hit for some success with the Angels. So if he doesn't end up with the Astros or Mariners, I see him playing for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. I'm going to go through it one more time. Tanaka to the Cubs, Cruz to the Orioles, Drew to the Red Sox, Garza to the Dodgers, Arroyo to the Yankees, Santana to the Diamondbacks, Morales to the Astros, and Jimenez to the Angels. And what, like I said, over the course of the next couple weeks, we'll obviously start out with the next pass ball show, which will already have a decision on when where Masahiro Tanaka has landed, which all of you listening right now already know what team he is currently playing for as they're getting ready for the press conference to introduce him with his new jersey. And I'm telling you, I'm, I feel very strongly it's going to be the Chicago Cubs. If not, it's going to be the Los Angeles Dodgers. If not, it's going to be the New York Yankees. And if it's it's not any of those teams. It's it, that's not going to be a scenario because it's going to be one of those three teams. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the show. As soon as we come back, we're going to speak with Hall of Fame pitcher Ferguson Jenkins. So we'll be back right here on the MTR Radio Network. Back after this. I always wanted to work in sports. Kind of got sidetracked in college, then ended up in a job and and realized I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. Researched CSB and ended up making, you know, one of the better decisions in my life. Want to be part of the exciting world of sports broadcasting? You've got to check out Connecticut School of Broadcasting. We have nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. There's no stalling here. You start learning from day one. How to use the camera, learning what you're supposed to be doing on camera, getting into the radio booth, DJing. But the biggest thing for me from CSB, they helped me get my foot in the door in two of the best internships in the city. Nothing about the job gets old. It's, it's The good thing about sports is every night's a little bit different. We've placed thousands of grads for nearly 50 years. Contact us today. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. 
Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. back john pielli passball show mtr radio network our next guest is obviously a baseball hall of famer and you know as excited as i could possibly be about welcoming him into the show um, he won 284 games throughout his career mostly with the chicago cubs 10 years six years with the texas rangers came up with the philadelphia phillies uh, was traded to the cubs in 1966 ends up emerging uh, becoming a starter towards the end of the season, earning a job in a rotation in 1967, which started a streak of six consecutive seasons of winning 20 games or more. Was a very durable pitcher, a strikeout pitcher, a uh, guy who would win 25 games for the Texas Rangers in 1974, and ends up uh, being inducted in Baseball's Hall of Fame in 1991. So hopefully you guys enjoy this interview with Hall of Famer, Ferguson Jenkins. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with Hall of Fame pitcher Ferguson Jenkins. Hey, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Josh. Chris, real good. Hey, uh, you know, a couple of interesting things. You know, I got a chance to read uh, Billy Staples' book, Before the Glory, and, of course, you know, you're featured in it. You know, it talks a little bit about your childhood. Um, if you got a couple minutes, tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, your father and your mother and, you know, where they came from and stuff like that, which I found very intriguing by reading the book. Well, I was uh, raised in, uh, in Canada. There's five generations of Canadians in my family. Uh, my uh, mother's family uh, were part of the Underground Railroad that migrated uh, from Kentucky up through Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan and into Canada, uh, probably in the late uh, 1800s. Uh, my dad's family uh, were from the Barbados. Uh, they migrated uh, through... Uh, uh, parts of uh, Nova Scotia, and they were part of what they call the Arcadians, and they migrated down into Ontario. Uh, just uh, that's a brief summary of, of what my family were. Uh, I was raised in, in Ontario, uh, went to all the schools that were available to me, and uh, graduated uh, from a, a boys' uh, tech school. I got an opportunity to play uh, professional baseball when I was 18 years old. Yeah, and I tell you, one thing I found fascinating about, you know, w the way you learned how to pitch was that you actually uh, used to throw pieces of coal from a local coal yard. Uh, talk a little bit about that and, you know, what, kind of, what part of that kind of allowed you to perfect the art of throwing? Well, you know, I was raised in a small community in Chatham, about 22,000 people, and our home where I lived was right on the edge of the town, uh, close to a spur in the Chesapeake in Ohio, and I used to come into Terry's uh, coal and ice yard. And as a kid, you know, you're always looking for something to do. I used to throw coal into an ice chute door that was no bigger than the ice chute. 
where the, the ice came out of it. So the, probably the dimensions of something like that was probably, you know, three feet by, uh, by two feet. Uh, and the ice would come out and slide down and go into the boxcars. And, you know, we used to have contests of throwing coal into these ice chutes. And uh, I, I was kind of the, the individual that won most of the contests. But uh, uh, when I look back at it, uh, uh, I, I had to suffer a little bit because uh, every so often Terry's uh, employees would go to the house and and uh, wanted to know, hey, where's your son at? Because they want to talk to him about throwing uh, coal up through this ice chute because it was freezing to the ice as the ice was loading into the uh, hot <laughs> car. So my dad probably suffered more than I did. I, I probably didn't get the, as much of a tongue lashing as my dad did because of the fact that the employees would always come to the house and say, hey, stop your son from throwing coal through this ice chute. Yeah, once again, John Piel here, Hall of Fame pitcher, Ferguson Jenkins. Now, when you, uh, you know, when when you were up in Canada, did you have a chance to play a lot of organized baseball when you were younger? Well, our baseball was uh, basically service clubs. Uh, could be an Optimus, Kiwanis, JCs. Uh, we had another uh, individual that was called uh, Kent Ashfall was a an individual company that sponsored the senior baseball that I played when I was 16 years old. But, you know, Little League was basically not Little League. It was sponsored by, like I say, JC's Optimus, Kiwanis. And I started playing baseball, I think, when I was eight or nine years old and graduated from one league to the other and won a couple of OBA championships, which is uh, Ontario baseball championships. And uh, a lot of the fellows that uh, I played with were both the uh, uh, dual sports, you know, some played hockey, some played baseball, some played basketball, some played baseball. So it was a community of, of kids that really wanted to involve themselves in sports. And a lot of times the fathers were our coaches. So, and my dad was my coach for, for quite a while. And as you as you grow forward, was there was there anybody that you played with or either kind of followed that was kind of a mentor with you, you know, and it maybe in addition to your father, or was your father kind of the sole, uh, you know, the the sole man that kind of showed you how to play the game? Well, there was uh, one individual named Gene Desjardins. He uh, had signed uh, with a club organization uh, right out of college, and he got hurt, and he came back. To Windsor, where he was born, finished his, uh, his education and became a history teacher. Uh, he moved to Chatham. I met him when I was 15 years old, and he was kind of the individual that uh, mentored me uh, about the sport of baseball. Because a lot of the kids in our area, we're, we're just good athletes. You know, some, like I said, hockey, basketball, baseball, some of football. But he was the individual that took me aside and. And wanted to know, you know, why I wanted to be a professional athlete. You know, I watched sports on television. Tigers were pretty close to where I lived, and, and pretty late to get games on television from time to time. But he was the one individual that turned me from understanding that if I was going to be a, a major league player, first base and a hitter was not maybe the position for me. So he said, if you really want to learn how to pitch, I can help you. And which he did. And three years later, after that, I signed a professional contract with the Philadelphia Phillies. Now, of course, you end up, uh, you know, 
coming up with the Phillies, you're signed as an amateur free agent in 1962, and then you make your major league debut uh, three years later. You get a couple appearances for them, and then in, uh, pretty much throughout the start, you know, not too long into the 1966 season, you get traded to the Chicago Cubs. Did you did you think uh, more of the trade as kind of a shock for you? Like a lot of players that that had played at that time were kind of used to being with one organization. Once you sign your first contract, you expect probably to be there for a while. Was it that much of a surprise that you were traded in 1966? Well, yes, I signed uh, at the age of 18. Played in the minor leagues uh, with the Phillies almost two and a half years, uh, from B-ball, A-ball, Double A, Triple A. And then getting an opportunity to get to the big leagues in 1965 and uh, have an opportunity to, to pitch and win some ball games for the organization, I thought for sure I was going to be in, in a Philadelphia uniform for quite a few years. But the following year, 1966, I was involved in a, a five-player trade. Larry Jackson and, and Bob Buell from the Cubs, Rodolfo Phillips, John Herstein, and myself from the Phillies. Then got traded and was the Cubs in '56 and had a great manager, Leo DeRocher. He kind of tutored me on what I should be doing. I started off in the bullpen, it's quite a few games with them, and then he gave me some starts. And uh, from then on, uh, uh, I, I just think that having that opportunity to be a starter, having the rest every third or fourth day, and going out there and performing, I won some ball games in that Cub organization. Yeah, no question. And I'll tell you, you know, you make a, you just mentioned you got a chance to pitch a lot in relief in 1966, but uh, I would assume you came into 67 through spring training. Leo kind of just let you know you were going to be a starter from here on out, right? Well, at the end of the 66 season, Leo brought in five pitchers. We were all pretty young. Kenny Olsen, Bill Hands, Rich Nye, Joe Nico, and myself. And he said, come spring training in 1967. We're going to, out of you five young pitchers, we're going to pick four that will be our starters. And I won the starting job. I was opening day pitcher in 67. Kenny Olson was the second pitcher. Bill Hands and then Rich Nye and moved Joe Nico back to the bullpen. But other than that, uh, I just think that having that opportunity and having the, the type of manager that Leo was, he was, a, he was the kind of guy that gave you the confidence to go out there and, and perform and and uh, to this day, uh, I, I kind of tip my hat to him because of the fact that he always took me the opportunity to, to, to win ball games. And the nice thing about it is I tried to always tell myself I had the confidence to stay out there and to be a winning pitcher. And he was kind of the manager that, that left me out there and uh, gave me the opportunity to win ball games. Once again, John Pielli here with Hall of Fame pitcher Ferguson Jenkins. Now, in, you know, from 1967 to 1972, you win 20 games every year. And what I find just as impressive is 20 complete games or more every season, uh, nearly 300 innings pitched every season, well over 200 strikeouts every season. Uh, you know, what did you, what were you able to do to keep your body and your arm in, in the best shape possible to continuously go out there and pitch that many innings and make that many starts year in and year out? Well, I look back and I told a lot of people, maybe it's genetics. Uh, I had a routine of, of, of throwing in the winter uh, with Gene DeGiro. He, he was kind of that, I said, my mentor. He got a catching glove and we would throw in a local gymnasium, starting off uh, 
right after Christmas. And we throw six, ten days or so after Christmas, and then all the whole month of, uh, of January, and then we uh, started in February. So we, we got about maybe a good six or seven weeks of really getting my arm in good shape again. And I used to run quite a bit. I ran track in, in, in high school. So I wasn't afraid to run to keep my lower body and the core of my body in good shape. And as I said, kinetics is giving me a strong arm. But I threw all the time, so I wasn't afraid to throw. So this is probably the reason why I was able to stay as healthy as I was. Yeah, and I tell you, you know, you're able, you're able to stick around, not only not only pitch effectively, but to do it for, a, you know, a consistent basis. Did you ever, um, you know, come up with any type of, let's say, elbow tenderness or shoulder stiffness or something that you felt that uh, was, you know, borderline that may, you may have had to sit out for a significant period of time? No, knock on wood. I never had a sore arm in the 21 years I played professional baseball. Sure, there was the odd time you might have some little you know, stiffness in your shoulder, but I would throw through it, warming up in the bullpen. Um, the doctor might give you maybe a Tylenol or, or something that he thought was going to be the, the, the tablet that was going to be the miracle drug, but I don't think well, back then we had miracle drugs to, to basically put us out there on the mound, but I would throw through stiffness. Uh, I would do lots of exercises to, to loosen up fire. To, to, to me pitching and always right after I pitched I'd get in the shower and put a towel over my shoulder and run hot water as hot as I could take it just to loosen up my arm so the next the next day I was able to throw a little batting practice or the next day go out there and pitch. Yeah, now, uh, of course, you end up going over when you get traded to the Texas Rangers. Bill Matlock ends up going over to the Cubs, and uh, obviously he has a lot of success there, but 1974 was arguably your best season. You win 25 games, you made a 41 starts, you know, you, you really kind of uh, reestablished yourself after a little bit of a down season in 1973. What did you think for, for you, from your perspective, what do you think was the difference in you being able to have so much success in 74? Well, you know, I traded uh, basically the National League for the American League. I went to a team that uh, uh, they basically needed pitching. You know, Billy Martin was the manager, and like Leo, he gave me that opportunity to start. Uh, I, I just think that uh, going to a new league, uh, the first half of the starts, umpires were kind of a little different in the American League. They had that inflated chest protector. And they wouldn't bend down. They would basically stand over the catcher instead of like actually up fire down on one knee to see pitches. And my strength was down in the strike zone. So I had to kind of prove to the umpires in the American League that I could consistently throw strikes down around the knees or even lower with my slider, curveball, changeup, or whatever, whatever pitch I was throwing. But uh, it was it was kind of a surprise, I think, for a lot of people that I came off a, a season where I only won 14 games, which is a lot now. But I won 14 games in, in 73 and pretty much uh, told the National League that, hey, maybe uh, I was due for a change. So I got traded <laughs> in a trade where Bill Matlock and Dick Harris, uh, three-player trade, went to Texas. And the team really supported me. I, I won a lot of games close, two to one, one to nothing, 
I beat Oakland five times that year. I beat the Yankees quite a bit. But I, I mean, it was just something that maybe was was due for me to have a change, and and the change was uh, in 1974 was a trade. And I'll tell you, what stands out about 74-2 was something you just touched on, the fact that you dominated the Oakland Athletics, who were the defending World Series champions, and in that year they would go and win the World Series again. What what was it that allows you to just kind of pitch your best to them? Because, you know, this is a team that was probably the premier American League team of its time, but, you know, you were 5-0, and you had five complete games, two shutouts, and the five starts. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about that dominance about over the athletics that season. Well, as you know, there was only three teams in the Valley in Arizona. The Cubs were there along with Oakland and also San Francisco. So I had an opportunity to, to pitch against uh, Reggie Jackson quite a bit or Rick Bundy or uh, Joe Rudy, Tennis, Pando, Campanaris, all these guys that were on that ball club. I had a chance to, to see exactly what their strengths were compared to mine, and when I went out there and I had a pitch against a Catfish Hunter or a Vita Blue or a Kenny Olsen, when he left our ball club and was traded to Oakland, or, or, or whoever the other starting pitcher was, I pretty much knew their lineup, so I tried to stay away from their strength and pitch to mine, and, and this is the reason why I think I was so successful, but the team played really great behind me. I had a great infield with Jim with Hargrove at first. Lenny Randall at second, along with uh, Toby Harris short. And we had uh, Dave Nelson played either third or, or, or shortstop or even second base. But we had a good infield. Uh, Jim Sundberg was a rookie catcher at the time. Uh, Joe Levito in the outfield, Alex Johnson, oh, Cesar Tovar, and Jeff Burroughs was MVP of that year in 1974. He really had a fabulous year driving in runs and hitting home runs. So everything kind of fell into place. And I think, that, as I said, uh, as a pitcher, you have to have good defense behind you, and by far, you have to have a team score run for you. So they were an outstanding ball club for me that particular year. Yeah, no question. Once again, John Pielli here, Hall of Fame pitcher Ferguson Jenkins. Um, really, the one blemish in your career came in uh, 1980, where you know you were arrested for the possession of cocaine and then suspended by the commissioner. How did that situation impact your life, and you know maybe make you a, a, a little a little bit better in in regards to your your life going forward? Well, you know the, the drugs were found in my suitcase. And to this day, I don't know how they got there, but I was given absolute discharge, which is a, which is a, a, a court-appealed judge opinion of, of what the situation was. But I went ahead with my life. 1980 was well, it's going to be a good year for me, I thought. But to, having a, an opportunity to, to to lose some starts, which as a pitcher, when you lose starts, you lose an opportunity to win ball games, and uh, I was suspended for almost two and a half weeks. I think I missed five starts uh, that year, 1980. I think I only won 12 or 13 ball games. So the opportunity for me to win more games was was, was a penalty, basically, that Boykoon issued on me because of the fact that he didn't know the true facts. And unfortunately, uh, I came back after the suspension had an arbitrator overturn the, the situation and come back and uh, played uh, three more years with the Rangers and then two more years with the Chicago Cubs. So my career basically uh, 
was interrupted there just briefly. Yeah, and the good thing about it is it wasn't that long and you're able to kind of get back on your feet. One more question about that. You know, we're talking about the early 80s, the beginning of the time where a lot of players are using cocaine. Did it, did it bother you that you were given a reputation because of the situation when so many other people were actually using cocaine? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, it was, it was kind of a, uh, a label that all of a sudden myself and half a dozen guys with the Texas Rangers were, were part of some kind of clique that was going around the American League, and, and uh, they really didn't come up with it. I think it's, it was kind of a prefab thing that people were saying that we weren't going to win because they had a bunch of junkies on the ball club, and, and that wasn't the true fact. And uh, the organization ended up uh, turning all those, uh, those questions uh, around, and we ended up really winning and, 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 and supporting, uh, uh, I think, the fellows on the ball club that I played for. Yeah, no question about it. And, you know, as you obviously you finish up your career, um, 1989 comes, you end up, uh, you know, getting on a Hall of Fame ballot for the first, for the, for the first time. And, and you, you end up, uh, you know, finally getting elected uh, in 1991. Tell us about how that felt for you. And did you feel like you should have been inducted in the Hall of Fame maybe a year or two sooner? I was on the ballot, as you said, in, in uh, 89, and along with uh, some other really tough competitors, uh, they ended up taking, uh, I think, Johnny Bench and Kari Jaskrimski, that, that particular ballot. And then the next year, on the ballot also, because you can stay on the ballot 15 years with the reporters uh, voting on it, uh, the next year they took uh, John, uh, uh, Joe Morgan and Jim Palmer. And, you know, I, I kind of felt that possibly maybe that particular stigma uh, from the 1980s was, was something holding over my head, but not really. Because uh, I was given absolute discharge, as I said. Uh, and if people really knew the true Ferguson Jenkins, they knew that uh, those drugs didn't belong to me. But the following year, I went in with two great other guys. I mean, uh, I was a teammate of... Uh, Jim Perry, uh, uh, Gaylord Perry, Texas uh, a couple of seasons, and Rod Carew, uh, a player that won, uh, I think, six or seven batting titles in the American League. So the, the class of 91 was, I think, a pretty good class and got the opportunity to, to sit on the dance with two of the great ball players and get inducted in the Hall of Fame with them. Yeah, once again, John Pielli here with Hall of Fame pitcher Ferguson Jenkins. Now, you know, throughout your career, obviously, you know, you're, you were very competitive. You were one of the top in the entire game. But one thing that managed to elude you was uh, the opportunity to pitch in the postseason. Um, how much did that kind of stick with you? And kind of a follow-up question, would you trade the opportunity to pitch in the postseason and potentially a World Series for the honor of being in the Hall of Fame? Well, you know, every player that puts a uniform on hopes and works to the point where you're hoping that that ball club will play six months of good baseball that will maybe given the opportunity to get in the playoffs. Because I know we got close with the Cubs. I was close again with Boston. But I, I just think that the, when you work hard and you try to to do your best to win as many games as a pitcher, especially you win as many games as you can and, and try to get your team to the postseason. 
a lot of times it doesn't work out that way. Uh, I look back at some of the teams that I played for, especially the team in Boston where we had Skrimski and, and Carlton Fisk and, and Jim Rice and Freddie Lynn. I mean, there's so many good guys. I remember Dwight Evans. So, I mean, hope that we can everyone would stay healthy enough to, to really get to the postseason. And we're out with the Cubs. I mean, you know, we had Ernie Banks and my roommate, Billy Williams, Sato, Kessinger, Spectre, Hunley. I mean, we were right there. And unfortunately, the Mets got us in 1969. But uh, I wouldn't trade anything that happened in my career because, you know, you, you, you hope that you play well enough to get to a series, but when your career is over and they calculate all the things that you did, number of wins, you know, complete games, things like that, and you get that opportunity to put on be put on a Hall of Fame ballot, it's just as important as maybe playing in a postseason. Hey, you got a chance to pitch both of your career with the Chicago Cubs. And, of course, you know, you hear fans, you hear the media, and, of, of course, there's always that thought of maybe maybe the Chicago Cubs as an organization are cursed, hadn't been to a World Series since 1945. Of course, we know they haven't won since 1908. How much stock do you put in that? And how much in your own mind are you, are you hoping to see the Cubs win a World Series for kind of everything that you've been through? I just think that the organization has really, really done well the last couple of seasons. They've got a new owner, new general manager, new CEO, and, and I think they're doing it the right way by taking youngsters uh, mostly from their farm system, grooming them to the point where these young men are ready to play Major League Baseball and ready to start winning for their organization. And they've really lost the last couple of seasons, but I think I'm... I'm uh, 2014 or 2015, I think they're going to make a, an impact on, on, on Major League Baseball and looking at actually in, a, in, in their division. So I'm hoping that uh, things will turn around. Yeah, I was a cup for 10 years, so I'm hoping that uh, that organization will start winning and start winning uh, in, in, in a good way. And I tell you, they made a they made an outstanding first round draft choice last year, taking the third baseman Chris Bryant, who, from everything I've researched and followed him, he's going to be an absolute star. So he's a guy that certainly down the road is going to be able to help the Cubs out. Uh, I hope they're able to uh, you know kind of get things going in the right direction. Before I let you go, I just wanted to uh, ask you one more question. While while you played during the off season, you actually played for the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and I'm sure. Sure, you know that was something that was able to help you stay in a good shape in the off season, right? Well, yes, I, I think that the plan with the Globetrotters, uh, 1967 to 1968, well, what was a help? Because of the fact that uh, I had had some success playing the game of baseball, but I'm I pretty athlete. Uh, I played a lot of basketball when I went to high school, so I went to an all boys tech school. So there was a, a good opportunity to play. Uh, the game of basketball, but I just think that running and, and, and doing certain things on the court uh, enhanced me to, to keep my body in pretty good shape. Uh, you know, Meadowlark Lemon and Curly and Jackie Jackson, those guys were the stars on the team, but I had an opportunity to play the third quarter of every game, and uh, that first year I played almost 85 games, and next year I played maybe close to 100, so, you know, it was a lot of fun, uh, I enjoyed myself. 
that, I mean, looking at a sport where these athletes were entertained, and believe me, they were excellent athletes. So no question. when I look back, uh, I think it did in some, in some way uh, help me with my body to stay in shape. One baseball moment in your entire career that stands out, what comes to your head? You know, at the, at the age of 18, getting an opportunity, I was the first individual to sign from my hometown. Uh, real small community. We signed Billy Atkinson, uh, Doug Melvin, uh, Eddie Myers. There were so many other players who got the opportunity to, to, to be a professional athlete, but I was the first one from my hometown. Hey, Ferguson, I really appreciate you giving me some time, and uh, obviously, you know, best of luck to your continued success, and thanks again. I appreciate it. All right. Nice talking to you. Great having the opportunity to catch up with a Hall of Famer. And, of course, Ferguson Jenkins, uh, you know, several years in the major leagues, was a dominant pitcher. And really, if you look at the decade of the 1970s, has to be up there with one of the best pitchers. And certainly, I think, is top three, top five in regards to the most dominant of the decade. And a guy who may have been held back at a Hall of Fame because of that uh, thing where the cocaine was found on him at the airport in 1980, which is – you know, something that he ends up having to deal with, but the writers realize that he is a Hall of Fame pitcher and certainly in a place where he belongs. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Quick break, and we'll be back to finish up the first hour after this. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. You're listening to MTR Radio. A flippin' out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We go offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. Saber Metrics. Created by computer geeks that think they're better than you. Saber Metrics. All these numbers make them seem smart and you stupid. Saber Metrics. I know more than you. Saber Metrics. Seldomly makes baseball points that cannot be proven using conventional stats. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We only got a couple minutes in this hour, but I, I did, if you listen to the little intro there, probably not the best one that I've ever put together, but it, it kind of solidifies my feeling about sabermetrics, but may not be 100% of how I really feel because I do understand and appreciate the uh, technology with the advanced stats, the analytics, the uh, metrics that are all put in 
to judge players based on who the best players are and who aren't. And teams are using them very wisely in regards to making decisions with the type of players that are most suitable to help their teams. But I think a lot of, and, and I'm going to blame some of the younger fans because I think this is where the wrath kind of comes from, where the younger fans feel that sabermetrics are the only way to go. And any player that doesn't live up to the sabermetric standards is all of a sudden a bad player. And the, the last player that I, I've, I've kind of put me over the edge here is Tyler Colvin, who's a useful outfielder, a guy you wouldn't consider being a star type of player, but has the ability to hit. But the one thing that holds him back is his inability to get on base. He doesn't have a high on-base percentage. He doesn't draw a lot of walks. And people go overboard with this. They say because a guy can't draw a lot of walks, a guy that doesn't have a high on-base percentage is all of a sudden garbage. He's useless. He's horrible. And that's not true. And I think I, I go with the, the, the stat of OPS more than I do with OBP because the simple fact of if a guy hits for a high average, if a guy hits for more power and just happens to not draw a lot of walks, doesn't make him a bad player. But we got this whole category of players that we've developed now, and it goes with the Mark Trumbos that you heard about being traded to the Arizona Diamondbacks and everybody crying about that. And he got the thoughts of Brandon Phillips going to the New York Yankees from the Cincinnati Reds, and Brandon Phillips is on that list. And the arguments and the heated battles that I've gotten with people, I've been blocked on Twitter by people that have disputed with me about Michael Young, whether the fact that he has ever been a good player. Michael Young, over the last couple of years, has digressed. Michael Young may not have a job this year if he wants it because he's digressed and is pretty much near the end of his career. But Michael Young was a very useful player for several years for the Texas Rangers. But all these players that we put in this category of the guys who don't walk a lot, just because you don't walk a lot doesn't mean that you're a crappy ball player. There are other attributes to the game that make players uh, more useful. And a guy that can't play defense, a guy that strikes out a lot, obviously those are factors that have to be brought in as well. That's something that has hurt Michael Young. Michael Young has been a bad defensive player over the last several seasons. His defense has gradually gotten worse since he's moved from shortstop to third base and now is not in a position where really can be trusted as a major league player in any position. So I get the questions about Michael Young. But the bottom line is he has had a good career. And players like that have a use on teams, even the teams that are the most sabermetrically inclined, that using their analytics to make every single decision, can use a player that doesn't walk a lot. It's just the whole balance of the team. Set it up to where you have guys that can draw walks. You want probably guys hitting in a one or two spots of your order to be able to take pitches to get themselves on base. Your number three hitter, or in some cases your number two hitter, the guy that goes out there and is your best player that's going to hit for the most power, going to produce the most runs for you. You want him to be pitched around. You want him to have an eye out where he's not going to be swinging at bad pitches. But a guy like Vladimir Guerrero comes to mind. A guy who had a very good career, was very dominant, but didn't have any patience at the plate. And it's not necessarily a downfall on a player. It depends on the player, and it also depends on the other players that you build your team around. You can't have eight guys that aren't drawing a walk, but you could afford to have one or two. And I think that's where the, the analytics community kind of misses the point about certain players that have value in other areas, but just because they don't have a high on-base percentage or draw a lot of walks, it doesn't make them a crappy ball player. Come on. Once again, I want to thank Ferguson Jenkins for being part of the program this hour. I got a solid program with three more interviews. We're going to play Passball Show MTR Radio Network back in five minutes. Chevrolet.